Well, it's always a wonderful time to begin an exposition in a new book of the Bible. Uh, There's great anticipation. I know there is in my heart, and I trust there is in yours as well. We get to crack open a new section of the scriptures, as it were, and see uh, what the Lord is going to teach us. And so there's always this sense of freshness, a sense of expectation as to how the Lord is going to shape us through a given study. And Hebrews is no different. Hebrews is a pretty uh, phenomenal and remarkable book because it's, it's unparalleled in Scripture. You know, in some of the epistles, you'll have epistles that are related to one another that have similar themes. But when you come to Hebrews, there's really nothing that compares to it in the New Testament. It's unrivaled in how it presents the ministry and the character of the Lord Jesus Christ over against the Old Covenant. And so, as we often do when we begin a book, we, we begin it by introducing it. And so this morning, we're not actually going to get into chapter 1. We're just going to really flip around throughout Hebrews, and we're going to begin to familiarize ourselves to kind of set the stage for uh, the consecutive expositions that will follow. But if you were to think about why is it, first of all, Hebrews, why are we at this book at this time? Really, the truth of the matter is, as reflected in my own walk with the Lord, my own sanctification, as I look at our church body, as we seek the Lord and discuss what would be beneficial for the church, Hebrews was what came to mind. And the reason for that is so that we might better understand our Savior. Jesus is an inexhaustible subject of our study. You can't fully comprehend all of his attributes, and in many ways, the more you think about him, the more you study him, the more mysterious and perplexing he is. The longer you study the fact that he was, in fact, God who took on human flesh, the more difficult it gets to explain some of the, the realities of what that actually means. You start to think, well, how exactly did God learn obedience as a son through suffering? That's a little bit perplexing when you're perfect that you would learn obedience. How is it that he grew in wisdom and stature? We get the stature part. We understand that Jesus would have grown physically, that he would have, would have aged, but he grew in wisdom, the omniscient God that didn't lose any of his divine attributes. See, Jesus is an inexhaustible object of our focus. And yet as glorious as Jesus Christ is, this side of heaven, our view of him often gets dim. Our view of him gets kind of cloudy. Remember years ago, the first time I can remember encountering 2 Corinthians 11.3, that verse jumped right off at the page to me. I was going through a study on sanctification. And Paul wrote to the church and he said, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. Of all the things Paul was concerned about right then, at least at that moment for that church, what he said is, I'm concerned that the gospel of Jesus Christ, God taking on flesh, living a perfect life, dying a substitutionary death for sinners, that message is so simple. I'm afraid you guys are actually going to begin to get distracted from it and you're going to be corrupted into thinking that there's something more to do. That's too simplistic. That message seems far too simple. That's all there is to knowing God is simply to trust in Jesus Christ. So as Paul's looking out on the congregation, he's saying, man, I watched theologically what Satan did to Eve in the garden and he began to introduce doubt about the character of God, the trustworthiness of God. He began to introduce doubt that there was really something better that God was withholding. And I'm afraid that he's going to use that same tactic on the church And when it expresses itself on the church, what it's going to be is to say, there's more to Christianity than the simple gospel. There's more to Christianity than simply trusting in Christ. To corrupt something is to ruin it. And so Paul says, I'm afraid Satan is going to ruin your thinking as it pertains to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as I look at my own life, I would say, My study, my reflection 
my worship of Jesus Christ is deficient. I don't worship him as I ought. And very often in Christianity, you can begin to have what Michael Horton coined as a Christ-less Christianity. A Christianity that begins to have all of the outer forms that we would commonly think of when we think of Christianity, and yet it is missing the very substance of Christianity, which is Christ himself. We studied the gospel of Mark for two and a half years. I remember uh, being the favorite exposition I've ever taught, the favorite uh, teaching I've ever gone through, because week after week after week, we're encountering the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're learning how he thinks. Not generically, but very specifically. We're learning how he handles people. We're learning how he worships the Father. We're seeing how he condescends to tenderly care for his sheep. We see how he reacts. We see his agony over unbelief. We see his boldness in confronting sin and his unwavering commitment to his Father's glory. We saw his humanity as he got hungry and tired and worn out. And we saw him even depending upon the Spirit of God in his obedience. It was a marvelous study. Every week it was a joy to see Christ. It's why Peter would say in his epistle that you've been called by the excellencies of Jesus Christ. That word is the moral excellencies. The moral beauty of Jesus Christ is compelling to you. This is what he's talking about, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Say, well, I would never slip into Christless Christianity. I know that Jesus is the center point. I know that Jesus isn't merely our entrance into Christianity, but he's whom we endure through it. I want you to turn by way of introduction to Revelation chapter 2. And I want to demonstrate how possible it is to, in the midst of what appears to be otherwise a faithful Christian life, we can actually miss Christ himself. And you get a letter from Jesus, and your name is on the subject line. It grabs your attention. And so Jesus writes a letter to the churches through John. And this one is addressed to the church at Ephesus. So you get your letter from Jesus. You open it up. What does he have to say to us today? John writes in chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is a message from Jesus we learn in the book later. Verse 2, I know your works. Jesus says, I know what you do, church at Ephesus. Your toil and your patient endurance. So I know that you work hard. You're a hardworking body there in Ephesus. You're sending out missionaries. You're discipling people in the faith. You're serving the saints. Paul wrote about the spiritual gifts building up the body there in Ephesus. It was a thriving hub of ministry. I know your toil. I know your labor. I know how hard you work in the Lord. He goes on and he says, I know your patient endurance. I know that you're willing to wait upon me in difficult situations. That you've demonstrated a faith that is robust means that you stick with things when it's personally inconvenient, when you reach resistance, you're not prone to discouragement, you hang in there. And he says, and I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Church at Ephesus was a church that cared about holiness. They had a passion for purity in the church. They understood God's standards and they upheld it. They were zealous about Christ-likeness in the church goes on and says, you, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. So you guys are the, the discernment captains. You're testing every wind of doctrine that comes in, and you're sniffing it out, and you're discerning right from wrong, truth from error. You can see it coming a mile away. Everything is in order in that church. Ephesus was a powerhouse of ministry. Paul had been there ministering. Timothy had been there ministering. If you look at all of the various missionaries and shepherds and apostles who'd come through Ephesus, it was a place that had a robust heritage. We know that the elders were faithful as Paul is commending them on the shore of Miletus there in Acts chapter 20 of his departure. And, and it says in uh, verse 5, excuse me, 6, you even hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know exactly what they were doing, but 
There was a group of people there that probably had some kind of a, an abuse of God's grace and using it for uh, loose living. And, and Ephesus had seen it and rejected it. And they said, we hate that. We hate that type of thing that would weaken the church. And so Christ gives them all of this commendation, this powerhouse, essentially church of great ministry. You think about it, if you were to take a conservative Bible church and you were to compare it, Ephesus is probably the closest New Testament church comparison, right? You have a church with great labor and toil, a church where the believers are serving one another in the Lord. There's a concern for purity of life and personal holiness, doing battle with sin. There's all kinds of doctrine being tested, right? A church that's not going to get caught up in the free grace movement. A church that's not going to be going woke, a church that's not going to be duped by confusion on social justice. A church that's going to be able to sniff out Arminianism a mile away. This would be a conservative Bible church. And when you think of the rich heritage that even this church has of faithful Bible teachers that we stand on the shoulders of, that we've been influenced by, much like Ephesus, there's a, a pedigree and a heritage that we enjoy of all those who've gone before us. And so with all of those things in order... Jesus says in verse 4, that something drastically wrong had happened. He said, I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. You abandoned the love you had at first. What is his issue? Well, it's nothing that you would have noticed on paper about Ephesus. Nothing was wrong in their doctrinal statement or in their practice. But what had happened is that in, in the initial revelation of the gospel coming to Ephesus, there was the joy and the thrill and the wonder of God's work of salvation. And everything that was done was centered on the worship of Jesus Christ. Understanding his love for them and their love back to him. And at some point along the way, Everyone is still doing church, still doing ministry, still carrying out all of the same deeds. And yet the love that originally encaptured their heart, the worship of Christ, has grown dim. That's why it's refreshing to be around new believers. You see them discovering things that you've heard a million times, and yet when they hear it, they're so excited about it because they're hearing it for the first time. And you think, man, that refreshes me. That's refreshing yeah, that's right. Justification is so remarkable. That's right. And so you, you see that love that you had at first. When you're first understanding truth, it is absolutely gripping. It's like when I was first dating my wife. I still think that she's pretty gripping. But when we were dating, I, I remember I had a, a good buddy who would um, speak the truth to me. And it's always good to have a friend like that around you. And so I remember I would talk about, oh man, this, you know, this, this girl that I'm dating, she's just so amazing. And I would be telling him what I thought was so amazing. And sometimes he'd just say, dude, that's not amazing. That's just normal. And his point was that, that in the discovery process, things that I thought were just uh, even a weakness, right? It's just cute. I mean, everything is just amazing because it's this new, fresh discovery process. And so in the first love of Ephesus, when they first encountered Christ, they didn't need to be reminded of the centrality of Jesus because they understood that that was how they came to God through Christ. Yet at some point, that exhilaration began to wane the joy of their salvation, the wonder that God brought Jew and Gentile into one new man, the discovery of doctrine. This is only 30 years likely after that church was planted. So 30 years after the church begins, you're in a spot where now the ministry is a well-oiled machine. You have established leaders in place. You have established ministries. Whatever it would have looked like in the first century, if you were to think of the equivalent of us today, everything is humming along well in the ministry. And yet when Jesus does an x-ray into the hearts of the people, he sees that something is critical. Something is missing. And so he tells them in verse 5, I want you to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. And do the works you did at first. 
I want you to remember from where you've fallen. I want you to actually put it in reverse and I want you to go backwards. The basics that brought you into the faith are actually the place that you need to go back and be refreshed in. You don't outgrow them. It's, it's something that you need to be reminded of continually. Another way of putting it, he's saying you guys were in a better spot when you started out and the ministry wasn't a well-oiled machine. You were better when things weren't blowing and going. Because you understood your utter need and you were dependent upon the Lord and you loved Christ and that is where you need to return back to. So for you to think about this in your own life, you can come to church every Sunday and not really worship Jesus Christ. Make it very personal. You can study to preach a sermon. And you can preach about Christ and not be worshiping Christ. You can be trying to live a holy life and deal with the sin that you see and, and be more righteous in your conduct and not ha have it anything to do with your worship of Christ. You can give money to the church. You can serve in ministry. You can even read your Bible and pray every day and not have it be connected to love and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, to be honest, I find that at times I'm prone to forget the supremacy of Christ in my own life. I have no problem putting my hand to the plow and laboring and toiling. No problem testing the prophets and seeing truth from error. Man, no problem getting up for that. That's exciting. No problem enduring. I mean, bring on the hardship. Let's just keep going like a machine. That sounds great. We'll serve and disciple and preach and teach and encourage and exhort and admonish. But all of that can be done without worshiping Christ. And so Hebrews... Hebrews is to bring Christ into center focus for us again. It's to remind us that he's not our entrance into the faith, and then we go about the Christian life without him, but rather he is the very center point of all that we do. That's why we're in Hebrews. We're in Hebrews for my soul, and we're in Hebrews for your soul. And my concern is not, first and foremost, then, that Christ is disappearing from some seminaries, although he is, or some denominations, although he is, but that Christ would disappear from Cornerstone, from your focus and from mine. And so I want to introduce you this morning to Hebrews, and it is a letter that is written specifically to address the issue of bringing Christ into clear focus. I want to give you Hebrews in a nutshell this morning, and there are really four parts to this. I'm going to introduce you to the author of Hebrews, and then the audience of Hebrews. So who wrote it? Who was it written to? Then the argument that takes place uh, in this letter to kind of understand the general idea of how it's constructed, not the outline, but the, the central themes. And then finally, the aim. What is this letter designed to accomplish? Hebrews, in a nutshell, will begin with the author. The author of Hebrews is not specified in the same way that we find in most epistles. So most epistles you turn to, and the first word is something like Paul, or James, or Peter. This letter begins, and there's no name. Um, no name is written. It just starts. And so there are lots of suggestions, lots of speculations. In fact, there are uh, many views of the authorship of this book. Some suggest that it's the Apostle Paul. Some believe that it is Luke. If you're really cool, you can believe that it's Luke writing a sermon that was preached by Paul. That's kind of probably the, the uh, most impressive assumption. And uh, you kind of get a two for one there. There's a suggestion that Clement was the one who wrote Hebrews. Barnabas has been thought to be the writer of Hebrews. Apollos has been credited with writing Hebrews. And Silas has been credited with writing Hebrews. There are very few things that we know, but Hebrews 13.23, we know that whoever wrote this ran in the same circles as Timothy. So Hebrews 13.23, we read, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. So he's saying, hey, if Timothy comes back to you, he just got out of prison, I'm going to be coming with him. So this was a ministry associate with Timothy. Now, if we think in terms of timelines, Timothy had not yet been in prison when Paul was writing 2 
Timothy, because in 2 Timothy 4.21, he was saying, I want you to come to me while I'm in prison. And so we can deduce, uh, because that was uh, mid-80s, probably eighty sixty four when Paul was killed and Timothy would have gone to him and Timothy's been released, that this letter is probably written after AD 65. Now the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And as we're going to see as we go through Hebrews, there's this encouragement uh, to leave behind the Old Testament practice. Now if the temple had been destroyed, it would have been a very different argument. It would have said something like, see, I told you so. And it would have been a very simple thing to say, see, the temple got destroyed. That's why you don't need to go back to it. Case in point, it's very obvious to all of us. But since there's this encouragement to leave behind the temple, it would indicate this was written before AD 70. So somewhere between AD 65 and AD 70. Well, the writing style doesn't match the Apostle Paul. It's a bad guess. And the writing style doesn't match Luke. It matches that quality. It's very good Greek. It was written by someone who is educated. And so that's why it's usually suggested it was one of Paul's ministry friends, such as possibly Apollos, uh, because there's uh, an eloquence to this. But at the risk of sounding snarky or oversimplistic, my perspective is that when God wants us to know something like who wrote the letter, then he puts the name of the person who wrote the letter. And when he doesn't want us to know the name of the person who wrote the letter, he doesn't put the name in the letter. And so frankly, well, it might satisfy your curiosities. It might be fun to get into in like the chat thread on some blog that you geek out on or something like that. There's really no edification value to knowing who wrote Hebrews. You want to know what's important for our understanding Hebrews 13, verse 19, the author says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So the only clue that you need to know about the author to help you interpret the book is that when he says, I want to be restored back to you in 13, 19, that's indicating that he used to be among them. That idea of being restored back was to return. It was meaning then that the person that penned this was a familiar face. It was a voice that this church knew. He's saying that you can expect me to return. So I'm firmly convinced that somebody wrote the letter to Hebrews. And that is where I'm standing is my firm conviction. Uh, There was someone who wrote Hebrews. God knows. The recipients knew. And beyond that, no one else seems to. So that is the author of the letter to the Hebrews. What's more helpful for us is really understanding the audience then. Who was this letter written to? Now this, also believe it or not, surprises all surprises, is very difficult to determine because there's no geographical location given in the letter. The only reference that has any geographical location that might help us is Hebrews 13, 24. Uh, At the end of the letter, the author says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. And then he says, those from Italy greet you. Now, the challenge with that is that it could be read, those who are from Italy greet you, meaning we're outside of Italy, we're writing back to Italy, maybe Rome, and the people who've come from Italy that are with me are sending greetings back to you. Or it could mean, I'm in Rome, I'm in Italy, and those who are around me here in Italy send our greetings with you. And so it's very difficult to to understand, even from that one reference, whether this would be something that's coming uh, from Italians, potentially Rome, or whether it's coming from people who are dispersed elsewhere, writing back to that location. See, the title of the book is is not um, indicating any location. And so most of the New Testament letters... Right? You read the church at Corinth, the churches of Galatia, the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, and on and on and on. We have a, a city to associate with the letter. Or perhaps the letter is written to an individual, such as Philemon, or the letters to Timothy and Titus. There's a name that it's addressed to. This does not bear the name of the author, as in James and Peter and John's epistles. Rather, the, the manuscript that says the letter to the Hebrews is something that was added after. So it was not a part of the original letter. So the letter was passed around. They said, we need to designate this as something. And so we're going to put to the Hebrews at the top. And so it's descriptive. And so the only thing that we know about these people is what we uh, deduce from reading about what they were experiencing. 
And that their experience is actually quite helpful for understanding the book. If you want to understand the audience, it is best to understand them as Christians who have converted from Judaism to Christianity. This is a letter written to Christians who've converted to Christianity out of Judaism. These are believers. Some commentators would say that this was a mixed audience. It was written to believers and unbelievers because there are some very severe warning passages in the letter. There's really not examples, though, of letters in the New Testament that are written with some evangelistic purpose to unbelievers and an edifying purpose to the church. Rather, I see this best as written to the people of God who would profess to be the people of God. And now the letter is going to begin to distinguish among the church who's a genuine believer and who's not which is how it always works in the church. If you want to see why I believe this is written to believers, turn over in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. Right after a warning passage in the beginning of chapter 6 that's stating that if you fall away from the faith, it will be impossible for you to be restored unto salvation again. The author says in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. So there's a contrast. Although we're speaking this intense warning about apostasy, yet in your case, beloved, loved ones of God, literally, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Right or right there is making a distinguish. Although I'm issuing this warning, I'm actually expecting and hoping better things concerning you. Not only that, but these people had suffered for the sake of the gospel. That would incline me to think it's written to Christians. Turn over to chapter 10, verse 34. We read, actually back up in verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you came to the knowledge of Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. These are people that had come to Christ at great personal cost. And so I believe that this letter is addressed to professing Christians. Now, what's interesting about this letter is most letters of the New Testament address Jews and Gentiles because bringing them into one body presented such challenges ethnically. There's not a single reference or mention to Gentiles anywhere in this letter. That's why it'd be called the Hebrews, those that had a a Jewish background. And I think it's best to understand that if the gospel came to this synagogue, you did have within a synagogue Gentiles who'd converted uh, from their Gentile ways, and they became God-fearers. You remember throughout Acts, as the gospel would go forth, it would come to those who were God-fearers. It was those who were Gentiles that had converted to Judaism. And so no doubt within this, if there are Gentiles, these would have been likely Gentile converts who already understood the way of Judaism. So they converted from their paganism to Judaism, and now from Judaism to Christianity. And so these believers are going through a struggle. If you think of it this way, this congregation is in a bit of of no man's land. In fact, they had not had a whole lot of revelation yet. If you turn back to chapter 2, verse 1, we find that this congregation had gotten a message secondhand. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. What's he saying? He's saying, You remember when we were there, he's us, he's including himself there with the folks. When the apostles came and they brought the message of Christ, we saw signs, we saw wonders. We never saw Jesus in the flesh. We were latecomers, but we received this word of the gospel and we trusted in Christ. 
And yet there's no New Testament written yet. So you hear this great, wonderful message about Christ being the fulfillment of the law. Christ being the end of the law. You trust in the Lord. And yet all of the New Testament revelation is still currently being processed. And so there was a vulnerability. You begin to think of what Jews left. It wasn't merely uh, that they were converting as a Gentile would out of paganism and going from not believing in God to now believing in one God. Rather, you had to give up your culture and your heritage and your religious views. That'd be a hard thing. You know, we deal with that sometimes. You'll meet someone who grew up in a different tradition. And it's challenging. It's challenging to to leave behind things that you've associated with the worship of God. So if you were a Jew, you were used to practicing the Sabbath every Friday night until Saturday night. Gathering at the synagogue. You'd have been used to the priesthood and having a a visible expression of a man who would mediate between you and God. So when you were around the priest, you just felt near to God because you were in the temple and he was there for you. You had a whole sacrificial system. It had a calendar with feasts and throughout the year, you'd be celebrating, you'd be remembering, you would be singing, you would be gathering, you would be cleansing yourself. You had foods that you could eat and foods that you couldn't eat. You had Uh, ceremonies that you would need to go through whenever you were defiled. You had circumcision. I mean, you had a lot of things going on that you would associate in your mind with faithfulness to God. And they weren't man-made traditions. These were actually things that were given to you by God. So God gives them to you. You practice them. Your parents practiced them, your grandparents and your great-grandparents. And this is what you've associated with the worship of God. And now all of a sudden... You leave that behind for Christ and you begin to feel drawn back. Drawn back to the comfortable tradition. This is a very real temptation. I remember a a few years back, uh, we invited a, a gal that we knew to church. She had a Mormon background and she started attending here at Cornerstone and uh, we would try and explain the gospel to her. And uh, her understanding was uh, essentially the difference between uh, the Mormon church and our church was essentially that we had you know, different books, different music, different titles, but the substance was the same. At the end of the day, We all love Jesus. At the end of the day, we all love God. And so in her mind, there was no real significant difference. And so she attended here for a number of weeks. And then she went back to the Mormon church. And I remember talking about it with her. And she just said, you know, at the end of the day, it's just just more comfortable. It's more familiar. It's what I know. It's what my family knows. And to her, it was simply a matter of, of which way do you prefer to worship God? It's just about preferences here. Imagine the draw, if you're a Jew, you were practicing the worship of the one true God as he prescribed all of your life, as your family had. And now you go into Christianity, and as you're in Christianity, you begin to suffer for Christ. And you realize that if I were to go back to my old practice, I'd be able to relieve a little bit of that suffering. Plus, that's familiar to me, and that's what even in my, in my insides, just kind of feels right because it's familiar. See, that's what the audience is struggling with right now. These are people who had adhered to Judaism. They have trusted in Christ, and now they are tempted to go back. So how does this author argue? What is his argument? How does he address this issue in the hearts of these people? Essentially, his argument, our third point, as we see Hebrews in a nutshell here, is to take comparison and to compare and contrast. He wants to compare and contrast two systems. And the main point is going to be that Jesus is better, and Jesus is greater, and Jesus is superior, and Jesus is preeminent. 
This is very common if someone's coming out of a false teaching, they need this type of approach. I've got some dear friends that minister in Italy, and this is what their evangelism always looks like. They're ministering to Roman Catholics who have been Roman Catholic for as far back as they can think in their family. And so what do they do in their evangelism? Say, all right, we're going to get together on Friday night. We're going to take one issue, one doctrine, and we're going to iron it out in the scriptures. We're going to compare and contrast what you believe with what the word of God says. We're going to compare and contrast what you believe with what the word of God says. And so what the author is doing here is he's saying, I want to take every dimension of what it meant to worship God in the old covenant. And I want to show you a link now to how the old covenant pointed to Christ. The old covenant was fulfilled in Christ. And now Christ is better every single step of the way than what you had formerly. One commentator writes in this epistle, contrast reigns. Everything presented is presented as better, a better hope, a better testament, a better promise, a better sacrifice, a better substance, a better country, a better resurrection, a better promise and sacrifice, a better everything. Jesus is presented here as the supreme best. Begins to walk through in chapter 1 and show us that Jesus is better than angels. Chapter 2, Jesus is better than the law that was delivered by the angels. Jesus is better than Moses and better than the promised land in chapters 3 and 4. He's, he's a better priest of the priestly line of Melchizedek, greater than the Old Testament priesthood, greater than Aaron in chapters 4 through 7. Jesus enacts a better covenant than the old covenant in chapter 8. He brings a new service. The former temple is gone, and now we have the temple of himself in chapters 9 and 10. And so therefore, his followers must preserve in the faith, chapters 10 through 12. My friends, the authors of Hebrews does not merely assert Jesus is better and leave it at that, but he begins to explain all of the very specific ways in which he is better. All the ways in which he is the substance. How he is the fulfillment of the old covenant. And so, if you are intimidated by the Old Testament, don't be because we're going to be spending a lot of time there in Hebrews. You're going to understand well Leviticus and the Pentateuch. In fact, Hebrews has more references to the Old Testament than any book in the New Testament, perhaps competes close with Revelation, but it's very different because Hebrews is just expounding Old Testament truths that for the hearers made a lot of sense and for us our work to get there. So what happened as this argument took place? Well, the revelation of Christ was that you have a greater opportunity, greater access to God. And yet with that also came greater accountability. And so in Hebrews, we hear a call to hear the voice of God. I want to show you how this happens, and I'll just skim over a few of these in the letter. Chapter 1, verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. A call to recognize God himself speaking to his people. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That would be the voice of God. Lest we drift away from it. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. The author is trying to write about the glories of Christ says, about this time we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing what? Dull of hearing the voice of God. Chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had Promised. There is the spoken word of God in promise. And finally, in Hebrews chapter 12, toward the end of this 
little epistle. The author says, in summary, Hebrews 12.25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned him on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And so this is the argument that is being placed, is that Christ is better. God has spoken to us through his son. And now you must listen to the revelation of the son. You must listen to him who is speaking. So as we see this letter, we've seen the author, or at least who is not the author. We've seen the audience. We've seen the argument. Now finally we see the aim. What is this writer trying to establish in the hearts and minds of God's people? What is the aim here? Well, this was designed almost as a sermon of sorts. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22. The very end of this letter, the writer says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. What he's saying is that this is, this is not argued as a, simply a theological work, a theological treatise. It's not a literary composition. This is a word of exhortation. Exhortation is a word of comfort. It's something that was designed to impact the will. It was a message that came forth that would compel you when you heard it to respond. You can think of it this way. It's, it's like a written sermon. And it was delivered then to change the recipients. See, the goal is that the hearers will receive this letter and as they take in the truth, it will cause a course correction in their lives. That is, they're reminded of the glories of Christ, that they will comprehend those realities freshly, that it will work deeply within their hearts, and the result will be a renewed commitment to the Lord. Richard Phillips says Hebrews was written to arouse, urge, encourage, and exhort. Those addressed to maintain their Christian confession and to dissuade them from a course of action that the writer believed would be catastrophic. You see, if you think about the issues that were going on in the lives of these people, they're different than a lot of letters we read in the New Testament, right? In Galatians, it's who has bewitched you. There's not another gospel. They're believing heresy. The Colossians were in danger of being taken captive by philosophy and plausible arguments. Corinthians was a divided church filled with too much pride. Ephesus had ethnic tensions between Jew and Gentile. Rome had the same challenges. Thessalonians had errors about the last days and persecution knocking at the door. But the driving aim of Hebrews is to encourage God's people to cling and hold fast to Jesus Christ. There's no mention of divisions in the church. There's no problem with error, it would seem. There's no correction offered for doctrinal problems. There's no major issues with the lack of love, although there's one encouragement to excel in it. But the point is that you need to press on in the faith. You need to persevere in the faith. And it doesn't just tell you to do it, but it tells you why to do it and how to do it. Phillips continues, the writer's intention is to address the sagging faith of men and women within the group and remind them of their responsibility to live in response to God's claim upon their lives through the gospel. See, the warning is not to drift away. I want to flip through this one more time, and I want to show you the aim of this letter. So go back to the beginning, and we're just going to mark these out as we go down through a list. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention lest we drift away from it. Guys, I'm concerned that you're going to drift from Christ. You've got the data. You know the data. You believe the data. I'm concerned that unbelief is going to begin to creep in. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
He's saying, give careful consideration to Jesus. You already know him. I want you to know him more. You already understand him. I want you to understand him more. Spend time observing him is the word group here to consider him. Become personally and deeply acquainted with him. You already know him. You need to consider him again. Go deeper. Hebrews 3, 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Is is the trajectory of your life a growing relationship with Christ or are you drifting from him? He's telling them, take heed. I don't want to see you fall away. And, And the idea of falling away is always an apostasy. Not that you never believed, but rather you had a profession of faith. You expressed belief and trust in Christ. And then something happened along the way and you abandoned it and you left it behind. He's saying you confessed Christ as Lord and now I'm concerned in chapter 3, verse 12, that you're in danger of falling away. It's the very same thing in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. It's the consistent theme of his concern. Same thing in chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast. Let us not let go of our confession. Hold fast. Endure to the end. Continue on. Chapter 6, verse 11. We see this theme appearing again, the aim in this letter. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. I'm concerned about you finishing the race. I'm concerned about your endurance. Hebrews chapter 10, this theme picks up again. Verse 22, let us hold fast. Let us not let go of the confession of our hope. Let's hold fast to it without wavering. Don't don't go back and forth in your faith. Be strengthened in it. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Chapter 10, verse 35, therefore do not throw away your great confidence. Do not throw away your confidence. Don't trash your conviction before the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 39, this appears again. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Why are you reminding us of this truth? Because I'm concerned that you're going to shrink back. You're going to pull back from Christ. Chapter 12, it picks up again. Therefore, in verse 1 of chapter 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Chapter 12, verse 14 Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it become defiled. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. See, when you receive this letter, if you were a believer, no doubt... You were struggling in your faith. You'd come to Christ. The author who knew them said, I'm convinced of better things concerning you. Yet in the battle for the daily Christian life, what had begun to creep into the heart was doubt, pressure, struggle. And in the midst of that, there was beginning to be the deceitfulness The hardening of sin, unbelief that wasn't dealt with properly. It wasn't properly identified and repented of. And so this writer who knows this body of believers well is writing to encourage them. You're on very shaky ground if you let unbelief remain in your heart undealt with. And yet Jesus Christ is the answer for that. He is the faithful high priest. And so as you would read this letter, and I'm sure these saints did, they would have been filled with great hope and joy because in the midst of their struggle, they would have been reoriented to see the issue for what it was, which was unbelief in the heart properly diagnosed. And then they would see the answer, which is to look back and set their eyes on Christ. 
If you were to summarize, then the aim of this letter, it is draw near to God with confidence through Jesus Christ and don't look back. Draw near to God with confidence through Jesus Christ and do not look back. And as we consider the application of this book for us, in some ways we can relate to these saints, these brothers and sisters, and in some ways we really can't. It's kind of hard to even get our minds around what it would have been like to leave the worship of God in Judaism. But I can tell you this, the message of drawing near to God through Christ is a timeless message. The superiority of Jesus Christ is a timeless message. The atonement of Jesus Christ is a better message. And so although we are not tempted to be drawn back into the Old Testament sacrifice, we are tempted to be drawn back into many things other than Christ. Richard Phillips concludes by saying, Hebrews tells us why we must press on because of the surpassing supremacy of Jesus Christ and how we must press on through faith in Christ, like the faith of those who went before us. Will you pray with me? Well, that's a lot of content to digest, even as it's coming out of my mouth. I understand that is just a lot to take in. Father, I pray that you would make that uh, in some ways useful uh, in preparing us to see the wonderful things that you have for us in this letter. Lord, I pray for those among us who might be spiritually dry right now, Lord, or discouraged or disillusioned. Uh, Lord, oftentimes when we look to ourselves, we see nothing but things that would be discouraging. Lord, and yet what a great reminder to not lose heart, to not become negligent, or but to properly diagnose the problem that it ultimately comes back to worshiping Christ for who he is and that very reality is what will align our hearts and solve uh, the issues that so often plague us. And so Lord, I pray that you would build your church uh, through this message, that you would um, build our understanding of Jesus, uh, build us not just in comprehension, but in our appreciation of him. And Lord, then the resulting confidence that comes from that, that we would not have a Christ-less Christianity uh, Lord, but that he would be uh, the beginning, the middle, the end of all that we do. We ask this for his name's sake. Amen.